I'm Theo. And I'm Juliet. And this is Apologies Accepted. We offer an entertaining look at some of the big issues in history by examining public apologies of the famous and infamous. We're looking at politicians, serial killers, actors, and you. Send us a public apology you would like to make, and we'll read it on the air and give you a chance to redeem yourself or just get some guilt off your shoulders. We're here for you. Once a week, maybe more if you're really, really sorry. Apologies accepted. The, the podcast. podcast. And I'm not Theo. And I'm not Juliet. And not Juliet. What's shaking bacon? Well, I got back from the Philippines and Ooh, I'm going to say it? it was, well, first of all, let me complain. So, okay. um, did not like Japan Airlines, which I will now forever really? call Japan American Airlines. Um, <laughs> yes. The the staff was great. The service was great. Everybody was friendly. I loved all of the um, attention and the bowing, and it was it was lovely, right? Uh-huh. Um, so cool. And then um, the seats were old and uncomfortable, oh. and uh, it, I, I think, you know, it's not asking for much to have a comfortable seat in economy. Yeah. You know. Yeah. For a long flight. Whatever. Yeah. 12-hour flight, everybody. Jeez. Um, the food was... Not good, and I uh, do like Asian food, but you know the rice was like just shy of being congealed. Um, yeah, I mean it was just sort of like, oh, okay, gross. thanks. Um, and so, but again, I can't fault the service, and and my bags didn't get lost. And then um, the Philippines was great; work was fine. I went there for business, of course. And then um, while I was there, I worked with somebody. I'm going to call her a friend. She's a work associate who lives in the Philippines, works for this company that we do business with. Um, but I really like her, and and we get on real well. And so um, in our, air quotes around, free time, in our free time, mm-hmm. she took me to this amazing antique store that was, like, in somebody's house. But the wow. house is, like, a mansion that's wow. a warehouse that's four stories tall. And yeah. it was just absolutely the best most stunning and and not because it was like super clean and filled with french antiques it was just filled with old furniture and artwork and it was awesome and i couldn't get enough of it and every floor every room i walked into i was just like oh my god right Uh, i must have said that like 37 times while i was there (laughs) and then i bought um two paintings which broke my piggy bank because i don't (laughs) typically do that and then it turned out that one of the paintings was too big to put in a suitcase, even a big oh, suitcase, no. even a steamer trunk. Because I'm oh, no. really good at judging size, apparently. <laughs> so I was like, that'll fit in a carry-on. So they boxed it up for me so that it would, um, I'd have to check it, right? And so they mm-hmm. just tore up a cardboard box and used scotch tape, basically, and pieced oh, together a box, right? And wow. so I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check this. And then I went to check it. And my friend Joy, because she's Filipina, negotiated a great locals-only discount for me, oh, right? Good. Which was, you know, awesome. But it was still like way more money than I have ever wanted yeah. to spend on on paintings. Um, and you know, and they're just like random antique paintings. Whatever, who cares, Theo? Um, <laughs> but I, I love them. I love them. I love them. Um, anyway, the box arrived and everything was great. So what I will say for Japan American Airlines and American American Airlines 
is thank you baggage handlers for not crunching that cardboard Yay. box up. It arrived in one piece and I'm thrilled. Um, and then I came back with a cold, which I thought was COVID, but I have tested like 40 times in two days and <laughs> it's not COVID. Good. Or all the tests are wrong. And so um, that's my fascinating life this week. What's up with um, you? I hear the that rains have like stopped. That sounds like a great trip. The rains did stop. It's a little foggy today, but um, it's good. All, all is cool. We're not flooded out anymore. Um, so thank God for that. Um, I redid part of my kitchen, just part of it. That's I got right. new countertops and a new uh, new backsplash. So it's, it's really nice now. We put the kitchen back together um, after they finished. So everything's cool. It's just like nothing, just, just like normal now. No big deal. Um, just a kitchen. The, just a kitchen. The stairs in the front of the terrazzo stairs in front of the um, apartments, apartments, condos, um, got redone. So that was something that I've been dreading doing for a while, but that got done. And um, I have a job interview this week, which is going to be interesting because they sent me a 10-page interview guide that I have to, with questions that they may or may not ask me. I mean, that's the funny thing. Like, they may not even ask me any of these questions in this 10-page interview guide, but I have to prepare as if they're going to ask them to me. So I'm questioning whether I'm even interested in this job. well, I mean, they're obviously interested in you if they're giving you the questions to the quiz in advance. Well, right? they say that everyone has them, so it's oh. not just me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, and I'm like, why are you even asking them the questions then if everyone has the answers? But um, they don't have the answers, but they have the questions. So anyway, um, speaking of answers to questions. Okay. Yeah. Here's a segue coming. <laughs> Uh, Today we're talking about Alan Turing. Um, Alan Turing was born in London in 1912, and he's widely considered a genius. He graduated from King's College, Cambridge, with a degree in mathematics, and in 1938 got a PhD from the Department of Mathematics at Princeton University. During the Second World War, he worked for the Government Code and Cipher School, which is their big big uh, code-breaking center where he um, figured out a bunch of techniques for helping to break German ciphers. Uh, He played a critical role in cracking intercepted coded messages that enabled the Allies to defeat Axis powers in many crucial engagements, including the Battle of the Atlantic. More relevant to our story, however, in 1952, when he was 39 years old, he started a relationship with Arnold Murray, who was a 19-year-old unemployed man. So I, I, I question his judgment here. Um, a teeny bit. How old was Turing at that time? 39. Well, mm, yeah, I mean, it's a there's little a big old. difference between 39 and 19. I mean, and I was trying to do some math that I was like, is that 20, 20 years? years? I wasn't sure. <laughs> <laughs> 20 years is too many years. And, and 19 is pretty close to being 18, which is pretty close to not being legal. Uh, yeah. Yep. So yep. there's that questionable thing. Um, just before Christmas, Turing was walking around, walking along Manchester's Oxford Road when he met Murray just outside the Regal Cinema and invited him to lunch. Um, his oh, house come garage, on. I know it was like 1940? 1950, 1952. 1952? But yeah. Uh, you don't go. Hi, random stranger. Would you like to yeah. have lunch? Hi, random homeless man. Would you like to have lunch? Well, okay. There, I mean. That's, what, do we know that the, the, the kid was homeless? Yes. Oh, well, okay. No. He was unemployed. Okay. He might not have been homeless. Uh, I was just assuming he was okay. Uh, he didn't uh, have uh, a job. Okay. Um, well, he didn't have he didn't have a job that uh, I guess he officially right, exactly. got paid for. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he didn't pay taxes. Look at us slandering this poor child. <laughs> pray, pray, continue. There's nothing good that's going to come out of my mouth. But um, bum. Yeah. No. Exactly. Huh. Um, 
So, uh, coincidentally, after he had lunch with this guy, uh, Turing's house was robbed. And uh, also coincidentally, Murray told Turing that he knew the guy who robbed the house, and Turing reported the theft to the police. So, during the investigation, not so wisely, he acknowledged a sexual relationship with Murray, and uh, homosexual acts were criminal offenses in the UK at that time, so both men were charged with gross indecency under Section 11 of the Criminal Law Amendment Act for 1885. Both men pleaded guilty in court. Murray was given a conditional discharge. I'm not sure why he got off, uh, but Turing was ordered to undergo chemical castration by taking doses of estrogen to reduce his sex drive. This procedure, commonly referred to as chemical castration, was his alternative to prison. So he got the option of going to prison or, or undergoing chemical castration, and he reasonably selected chemical castration, which is still terrible. Um, and the, the stories that I've read say that he... He took he took it okay. He wasn't bitter about it. He was he had a reasonably positive attitude about the whole thing, which I mean maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Maybe he was just trying to keep a stiff upper lip about it. Um, I don't know. But in on uh, June seventh, nineteen fifty four, sixteen days before his forty second birthday, he died from cyanide poisoning. Um, an inquest determined that his death was a suicide, but the known evidence is also consistent with accidental poisoning. He had cyanide in his house for chemical experiments that he conducted in a tiny spare room, and his mother believed that the ingestion was accidental, resulting from her son's known carelessness with his home experiments. One of his biographers, Andrew Hodges, uh, theorized that Turing deliberately left the nature of his death ambiguous in order to shield his mother from the knowledge that he had killed himself. So it's questionable whether he actually killed himself or um, died accidentally. It seems like it, evidence is sort of 50-50 for either. Genius what move. You, because What do you think? Well, um, what I think is that uh, it was a really great move. Um I, I think he probably did kill himself. Um, I, I mean, I do, but did yeah. he? And, and this is the genius part of this move. This accident, possibly accidental death allowed for life insurance to pay his mom. Ah, uh, I see. Whereas if he outright just killed himself, then that life insurance is null and void. So um, arguments both ways, but it does point to... Um, like if it was on purpose, really, really smart move. I should yeah. be uh, highlighting how smart a move that is, just in case I ever start doing cyanide <laughs> experiments in my yeah. Yeah, and his friend said that he seemed really happy right before he died, but that's kind of like what happens it's when you common. decide to kill yourself. That you get happier because all the weights, all the weight of your life is lifted off of you. You know, you don't have to worry about shit anymore because you're going going away. But um, I don't know. I hope. I hope it was an accident, I guess. I hope he didn't kill himself, but um, it, what happened to him was obviously terrible. And it took until August 2009 for the British government to bother to apologize for its treatment of Alan Turing. A programmer named John Graham Cumming haha, started a petition urging the British government to apologize for Turing's prosecution as a homosexual. The petition received more than 30,000 signatures, and Prime Minister Gordon Brown acknowledged the petition and released a statement on September 10, 2009, apologizing and describing the treatment of Turing as appalling. And then um, 
Four years later, on December 24, 2013, Queen Elizabeth II signed a pardon for Turing's conviction for gross indecency with immediate effect. In announcing the pardon, Lord Chancellor Chris Grayling said Turing deserved to be remembered and recognized for his fantastic contribution to the war effort and not for his later criminal conviction. The Queen officially pronounced Turing pardoned in August 2014, and her action is only the fourth royal pardon granted since the conclusion of the Second World War. Pardons, it's interesting that they pardoned him because pardons are normally granted only when the person is technically innocent and a request has been made by the family or other interested parties for a pardon and neither condition was met in regard to Turing's con conviction. So I guess someone was feeling particularly bad about uh, what happened to, to Alan Turing to pardon him. Um, but perhaps more importantly, in September 2016, the government announced its intention to expand this retroactive exoneration to other men convicted of similar historical indecency offenses in what was described as an Alan Turing law. The Alan Turing law is now an informal term for the law in the UK contained in the Policing and Crime Act of 2017, which serves as an amnesty law to retroactively pardon men who were cautioned or convicted under historical legislation that outlawed homosexual acts. This law applies in England and Wales. Turing himself has an extensive legacy with multiple statues and many other things named after him, including an annual award for computer science innovations. He's on the current Bank of England 50-pound note, which was released in 2021 to coincide with his birthday. And a 2019 BBC series voted by the audience named him the greatest person of the 20th century. And isn't that amazing? Because up until the movie The Imitation Game came out, I had uh -huh. never heard of him. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean... Oh, interesting. I'm not I'm not in tech, so... Yeah, that's true. When yeah, why would just, you, you know, where do computers come from? I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> They're magic. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So you have some information for us on, on laws, I think. I do have information for us on laws. Awesome. Because in, in looking at the subject, it was like, okay, the... At first, I thought it was going to be AI because that was Turing's real quest through mm -hmm. through using math and, I guess, science to um, figure out what is consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. Which, for him, then opened up a huge philosophical abyss, I suppose, um, where, you know, when a machine becomes sentient, what do we do? And what does that mean? And that was a real fun waste of time for me. <laughs> um, so it, whenever I would like try and dig into Alan, um, Turing, it got real mathy. It got real philosophical and I'm yeah. in for the, for the philosophy. That's great. Yeah. Right. But I mean, I can get high at any time and ask these big life changing questions. <laughs> so it was sort of right. like, that's not podcasty, but <laughs> what can I do? That's, and then it was sort of like, oh, well, what about, uh, anti-gay laws and state right. of the world now? And it's a no depressing I'm not going to do that to myself. So uh -huh. let's take a fun trip down memory lane and look at the history of anti-gay laws in Britain. Where do they come from? Ooh. Why do they come from? Um, and we will just begin by by informing our audience that the Buggery Act of 1533 passed oh by God. Parliament during the reign of Henry VIII is the first time in law that male homosexuality was targeted for persecution in the UK. Completely... Wow outlawing sodomy in Britain, and by extension what would become the entire British Empire, convictions were punishable by death. Wow. So, I guess chemical castration would be my preference. Um, yeah. It was not until 1861, um, with the passing of the Offenses Against the Person Act, 
It's so nice. Offenses against the person. Um, <laughs> that the death penalty was abolished for acts of sodomy instead of being made punishable by a minimum of 10 years imprisonment. The Criminal Law Act of 1885, however, went a step further again, making any male homosexual act illegal, whether or not a witness was present. Um, and so... It, under this law, even something as innocent as a letter expressing terms of affection between two men would be all that was required to bring prosecution. Um, and this legislation was so ambiguously worded that it became known as wow. the Blackmailers Charter. And in 1895, oh. Oscar Wilde fell victim to it. Oh. Female homosexuality, hey girls, was never <laughs> explicitly targeted by any legislation. Although discussed for the first time in Parliament in 1921 with a view of introducing discriminatory legislation, um, this ultimately failed when both the House of Commons and House of Lords rejected it to the fact that lesbians don't exist. No. <laughs> they rejected it. Close enough, though. Um, rejected it due to the—this f- is not—this is real. I'm not making this up. Okay. Due to the fear, a law would draw attention and encourage women to explore homosexuality. Oh. So if you even, like, women are just doing laundry at home, cooking, <laughs> and then you're like, you know you could lick labia? What? Really? I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck this Let me try dishes. that now. <laughs> right. <laughs> Never thought about it until you told me. Yeah. <laughs> Mansplained female sexuality. Um <laughs> It was also assumed that lesbianism occurred in an extremely small pocket of the female population. That is a not a pun, um, but mm-hmm. it almost should be. Um, meanwhile, a significant rise in arrests and prosecutions of homosexual men were made after World War II. Um, and then Alan Turing, of course, one of those men. Um, many were from high rank and held positions within government and national institutions. Um and then just to highlight here, Alan Turing's work in breaking the Enigma Code is believed to have shortened the war by two years and yeah. have saved millions of lives. And I'll say, more importantly, also helped beat Nazis and more more yeah. importantly, saved millions and millions of dollars, which the British call pounds. Oh, right. That's the critical thing. It's the money. The money. You saved so much money. Um, (laughs) The report of the Departmental Committee of Homosexual Offenses and Prostitution, better known as the uh um, better known as the Wolfenden Report, was published in 1957, three years after the committee first met in 1954. It was commissioned in response to evidence that homosexuality could not legitimately be regarded as a disease and aimed to bring about a change in the current law by making recommendations to the government. Central to the report findings was that the state should focus on protecting the public rather than scrutinizing people's private lives. Mm. You think? Um, it took 10 years for the government to implement Wolfenden's report recommendations in the Sexual Offenses Act of 1967. Backed by the Church of England and the House of Lords, mm-hmm. the Sexual Offenses Act partially legalized same-sex acts in the UK between men Mm. over the age of 21 conducted in private. Mm. Fair enough. Scotland and Northern Ireland followed suit a little bit. Oh, followed suit over a decade later in 80 and 81. So within our lifetimes, uh, this uh, was enacted in throughout the UK. Um, The Sexual Offenses Act represented a stepping stone towards equality, but there was still a long way to go. Um, 
Now, across the world from South America to Asia, an estimated 49 formerly um, British-administered countries continue to criminalize homosexuality. Out of these, 31 still have laws on the original colonial anti-LGBT legislation. Mm -hmm. Um, Despite the prevalence of anti-LGBT laws throughout the former British Empire, there was uh, never a blanket decree outlawing homosexual relations. Instead, it was the sensibilities of individual colonial administrators which led to the first laws and then their quick spread across the empire from 1860 onwards. And basically these laws were... Uh, put into place in the colonies because it was believed that the people they were colonizing were too sexy, too sexualized, (laughs) and that the British troops were going to, like, get all sexed up once they got to Asia, right? And so we're going to make homosexuality illegal so that no British soldier is going to be tempted by the sexiness, and these heathens can't control themselves. They'll just throw themselves on our British soldiers. Um, Wow. So the laws that the Europeans brought to the colonies dragged a long prehistory behind them. The first recorded, this is my jam. (laughs) Well, I should have said that. The (laughs) first recorded mentions of sodomy in English law date back to um, medieval treatises, to two medieval treatises called Flita and Britain. Um, They suggest how strictures on sex were connected to Christian Europe's other consuming anxieties. Fleeter required that apostate Christians, sorcerers, and the like should be drawn and burnt. Those who have connections with Jews and Jewesses, or guilty of bestiality or sodomy, shall be buried alive in the ground. I mean, where else are you going to fucking bury them, everybody? Um, Provided by, they be taken in the act and convicted by lawful and open testimony. So you had to be caught, and then you had to admit, right? Which feels like a great time to pull the trump. I might have been fucking that guy, but I wasn't. Um, (laughs) uh, Britain, the other treaty, meanwhile, ordered a sentence of burning upon sorcerers, sorceresses, renegades, sodomists, and heretics publicly convicted. Both treaties saw sodomy as an offense against God. They classed it, though, with other offenses against ritual and social purity Um, involving defilement by Jews or apostates, um, the racial or religious other. Um, The grab bag of of crimes was telling at Match Medieval's law treatment of um, sodomy elsewhere in Europe. The offense was not limited to acts between men, but could include almost any sexual act seen as polluting. In some places, it encompassed intercourse with Turks as well as Jews. Um, Wow. In part, this traced to it, and I mean, here's where it all stems from, right? Um, In part, this traced to an old strain in Christian theology that held that sexual pleasure itself is contaminating and is tolerable only to the degree that it furthered reproduction and specifically of Christians. So any any sexual act for the sake of pleasure is a sin against God, right? Get in there and do your duty, but you're not allowed to really enjoy it. Enjoy it, right? Exactly. uh, let's see. It reflected increasing fears in the advancing Middle Ages about pollution and defilement across social boundaries. Um, the historian uh, R.I. Moore finds in the 11th and 12th centuries the birth of persecuting society in Europe, targeting various enemies within. And these enemies might be Jews, lepers, heretics, witches, prostitutes, and sodomites um, who threatened the purity and carried contamination, had to be cast out and controlled. Um 
let's see. In the interest of time, I'm going to get to King Henry VIII. So, um, so Henry VIII, who passed that Buggery Act in 1533, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. broke with the Catholic Church in the 16th century and um, revised a lot of the country's common law simply um, because offenses that had formerly been tried in church courts now had to be tried in secular courts. Many sexual offenses were among them. The 1533 statute um, reiterates the criminalization of sodomy as a state rather than a church concern. Under the name of detestable and abominable vice of buggery committed with mankind or beast, it was punished by death. Um, The last known execution for buggery in England was in 1836, which I shared with you pre-show and... 1836, it's 170 years ago. You should have a calculator uh-huh. available at all times, um, uh-huh. but I don't. So a while ago, almost yeah. 200 years ago. Um, yeah. And so uh, in 1835, James Pratt and John Smith were two London men who, in November, became the last two people to be executed for sodomy in England. Pratt and Smith were arrested in August of that year after allegedly being spied through a keyhole having sex in the rented room of another man, William mm-hmm. Bonnell. Um, Bonnell, who was not present when the alleged sexual contact took place, was sent to Australia as an accessory to the crime where he died because, duh, they sent him to Australia, which is a country that will only kill you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then modern interpretation, and there's some doubts about the facts, but... Uh, as to what happened, but I did some Googling and Ooh. I found the court transcript from Ooh. 1835. Wow. And I'm going to say, other uh, sadly, it ended in the execution of two people. Yeah. It is comedy gold. Is it? But Oh, it is. And I'm going to share it with you. The drag okay. is all the comedy is no puns intended sucked away by. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I did that. Yeah. By the fact that two people were killed, right? Right. But let's let's do it. Why not? Okay. So, George Berkshire in court states, I live at number 45, George Street, Blackfast Road. I keep a call and shed horses for hire. I know the prisoner, Bonnell. He has lodged with me for about 13 months. He occupied the back room in the first floor and no other. Question. Have you known of any occupation that he has had? Answer. Not any. Question. Has he had visitors? Answer. Yeah, yeah, he has. Oh, that's German. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Question. Men or women? Answer. Men. Question. Frequent or seldom? Answer. Frequent. Question. Have you known them to come singly or in company with each other? Answer. Generally do. Question. Has there been more than one couple in the course of a day? Answer. At times there have. (laughs) (laughs) At times it's been as many as 25. No, he doesn't say that. (laughs) Question. On Saturday, the 29th of August, did either of the prisoners come to your house? Answer. The prisoner Smith. Question, at what time? Answer, about four o'clock in the afternoon or little after. Question, did he inquire for anybody? Answer, 
He came into the shop and he asked if Bono lodged there. I said, yes, he does, but I believe he is not within. And he replied, yes, he is, for I saw him at the window. I totally don't get that part, because why are you asking if the guy lives there if you saw him in the window? But okay, whatever. Um, back to George. He walked through the shop, the passage door being open. I saw him go up as far as the turn of the stairs. He turned back momentarily, went down and opened the private door, and the other prisoner, Pratt, came in. Pratt went upstairs. Smith shut the door and followed him up into Bonil's room. I heard him shut the door, but I did not go in to see him. Question. In consequence of the suspicions which you entertained, what did you do? Answer. I went out back to the premises of my place. There's a loft over a stable right opposite Bonil's window. I moved a tile and I had a pretty good side of his room. You moved a tile. <laughs> this is just Theo. Yeah. And yeah. you knew that the tile could be moved. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay, cool. Question. What did you see? Answer. I saw Bonil sitting on the side of the window and Smith on the other looking out the window and talking together. After a few minutes, I saw Pratt come and put himself down on Bonil's knee. Question. Sitting on his knee? Answer. Yes, it was but a short time. He then rose up as if pushed by Smith and placed himself on Smith's knee. And there I saw him for four or five or six minutes. Four or five or six minutes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Or seven. (laughs) I then shifted myself as I was rather cramped. And then when I turned my head, Pratt was away. I saw Bono and Smith sitting at the window. They seemed to be laughing together in conversation. I then went indoors. Did you say anything to your wife? Or did. And then went into our back room for my tea. Because nothing interrupts the British when it comes to tea time. Uh-huh. Question. Sometime after that, did your wife say anything to you? Oh, yes. Five or ten minutes laughter. Question. In consequence of that, did you go upstairs? Answer. Yes. And I looked up through the keyhole of the door when I saw Pratt laying on his back with his trousers below his knees and with his body <laughs> curled up. His knees were up. Smith was upon him. Pratt's knees were nearly up to Smith's shoulders. Smith's clothes were below his knees. I put my shoulder against the door and burst it open. Question. Well, you saw Pratt on his back, Smith lying on him, and both of their trousers down? Yes. Did you see any motion take place? Hmm. Oh, yes, the motion of the body and a great fondness and kissing. Question. What kind of motion? Oh, my God. An emotion we might make. Question. Supposing it had been connection between man and woman? Yeah. yeah, He's back to being German. (laughs) Oi. Equally the same. I put my shoulder against the door and burst the catch of the latch from the last... Burst the catch of the latch from the door, opened it, and saw Pratt Smith. Pratt said, Oh, my God, we are caught. Or caught at last. I will not swear which. Question. Did they change their position? Aye, they did. As quick as possible, Smith got upon his knees. I saw his private parts as he was getting up. And in what state were they? Oh, I cannot say, but I saw them. At the moment of your bursting the door, was Smith laying on Pratt? Oi. In posture you have described. Oi. <laughs> Saying oi instead of yes, because I'm just going <laughs> to German it up. When... When Smith got off his knees, Pratt turned himself around on his right side, and I did not see his person, but their trousers were down. As soon as Pratt got up, he exclaimed very bitterly to me for mercy. They pulled their clothes up as quick as they could, and both fell on their knees and offered me their purses. 
I don't know what accent I'm doing now. <laughs> it begged for, hard for me to let them go. Bono was not in the room at this time. Did he return to the room? Yeah. <laughs> Three or four minutes <laughs> after I burst through the door open, Bono returned to the room with a jug of ale. How long had Bono been away? Well, I did not see him go out myself, but I suppose quarter of an hour? 20 minutes? What more passed? Well, Bono came into the room. He seemed surprised at seeing me there and asked what was the matter. I called him an old villain and I said, you know what the matter is. You've been practicing this in my place for some times past. Past? He said, I know not. I know of what is, wait, I know nothing of what is done in my place. I have been absent. That's Bono. Um, mm-hmm. Going back to George. He asked me to drink. I said, no. I said I wouldn't take any drink with such society. A lodger came in. I left them in charge of my I left them to take charge of my lodger and went to the station house for a policeman myself. And then they interview the wife. I won't get into that, but um, they ask yeah. her like, hey, so what did you see? And she, she's a nice lady. Yeah. Right. So she's like, oh, I just saw some men with their trousers down. And like, okay, what did you see? What state were they in? Oh, I don't know. I couldn't say. Like, where yeah. was he erect? Um, mm. Were they ready to make a connection? Oh, I, right. <laughs> and then they interview the cops, right? Mm-hmm. And the cops come in and the cops inspected their underwear. Oh, wow. Right. Because, wow. you know, there's been some time to run, get a cop and then bring yeah. the cop back. And sure. everybody knew who these guys were. So it's like, even if they're not in the lodging house, they're, they're somewhere and you can go find them. Um, yeah. And then I forget which of the two, but I will say Pratt uh, was married and was considered a great, decent man in town. And yeah. he had been drinking with a uh, a friend of his, this this lady, who's one of the witnesses for his uh, character, right? And she's mm-hmm. like, um, oh, we had two or three pots of ale, and I don't know, and he was feeling pretty jolly, and he told me he had to go, and he see me later. He's always been a good guy. Mm. Uh, wow. you know, and and everybody that uh, the defense introduced basically said the same thing. Nice family man, very decent yeah. member of the community. And either way, they were both found guilty and executed. Oh, my God. That's a hilarious story of <laughs> the last execution um, in England, nice. which, you know, fortunately, 1835 to 1954, 70, 120 years before Turing. Horrible. I yeah. don't know. I can't do math. Me either. And I know that Brent's going to play this back and be like, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. I love how you're like, yeah. Yeah, yeah he, probably. I hear him say it. <laughs> All so right. Should we talk about the apology? The apology, yes. Let's, let's, because okay. I'm of two minds. So um, in 2009, when Gordon Brown um, pardoned Alan Turing, he said, and I won't read the whole thing because it's too long, but um, the key points are, um, while Turing was dealt with under the law of the time, and we can't put the clock back, his treatment was, of course, utterly unfair, and I am pleased to have the chance to say how deeply sorry I am, and we all are, for what happened to him. Alan and so many thousands of other gay men who were convicted, as he was convicted, under homophobic laws, were treated terribly. Over the years, millions more lived in fear of conviction. 
I am proud that those days are gone, and that in the past 12 years, this government has done so much to make life fairer and more equal for our LGBT community. This recognition of Alan's status as one of Britain's most famous victims of homophobia is another step towards equality and long overdue. It is thanks to men and women who were totally committed to fighting fascism, people like Alan Turing, that the horrors of the Holocaust and of total war are part of Europe's history and not Europe's present. So on behalf of the British government and all those who live freely thanks to Alan's work, I am very proud to say we're sorry. You deserve so much better. So what do you think of this apology, Theo? Yeah, so back to being of two minds. Like, on one hand, I you know, it's it's that thing of when a government makes an apology, they're sticking a flag in history saying, like, this was wrong and we're not going to do it again. And so great for that, right? And and some of the language, I think, um, definitely takes ownership of um, how wrong the British government was at, at that uh-huh. time. But, you know, at the same time, every every culture just simply operates within the time it's within. There's a better way to say that. Mm-hmm. But so um, I'm not going to I'm, I'm not going to like cheap out and do a five. Um, on one hand, it's a 10. On the other hand, it's a zero. So 10 for um, political correctness and uh-huh. historical necessity, I suppose, protecting gay people in the future. And then a zero for effectiveness because Turing's dead and, right. uh, you know, what, what can you do? So is it truly is it truly an apology as much as it is a political maneuver to set in motion or reaffirm laws that have been recently passed. More that. So ten for that, and and one for effectiveness. I I I don't know. Let, what do you have to say? And then I'll just do one higher, one lower, depending on how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I looked at it. Um, I looked at the words that were used, and I noticed that um, he said things like, "We're sorry for what happened to Alan Turing. They were treated terribly. He never said the government fucked them over." He never said we did this, and you know it's our fault. Um, so I, he kind of said, you know, the government has done so much more now, and you know the government is those days are gone, and the government is great now. Um, so I, I got annoyed at that, and I, when I looked at the criteria, um, there was an expression of regret, but there was nothing else. There was no explanation of what happened, no real acknowledgement of responsibility. So the, he never he never really. Um, took responsibility on behalf of the government for what happened. There was no declaration of repentance, really. I mean, he did say, we're sorry, but, I mean, that's kind of lame. Um, when he said, uh, earlier when he said, we're sorry, he said, yeah, we're sorry for what happened to him. Now we're sorry for what we did to him. Um, there was no offer of repair, and there was no request for forgiveness. So I gave it a 1.5 out of 10. Okay, cool. So um, so my one so and your 1.5. It's fair. Yeah, I mean, and again, it, it it is that thing of like I'm glad that it happened. And oh yeah, didn't for sure. Have to do it, and so ten for all of that. But it as an apology, it's a one. Okay, fair enough. So that's an average of um, one point five. Sure. <laughs> if you say so. All right, that's my math. Um, and do you have an apology expected, or who's sorry now on this day? I had a dream last night about yeah. uh, an apology expected or who's sorry now. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I w- woke up and I was like, oh, I got to find one. Um, oh, so the short answer is no. But in my dream last <laughs> night. Dream, did you have one? Yes. Yeah. 
Um, I went to school with a girl, and I'll only use her last name, um, and her last name, and I won't say the state, but I was in the first grade, and she was like okay. one of my really good friends, right? Uh-huh. And I had, yes, even in the first grade, I had divided friends into groups. Really good friends, a friend. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. so she was in my really, and her last name was Sickenberger. And I was telling you the story. I called her Chickenburger, and we laughed and laughed and laughed over that. And then I was like, "No, her name is Sickenburger." And so I'll say, um, "I'm sorry that I don't have one, but I woke up with a dream that told me I did have to have one and coughed something up from the first grade." So the, um, there we are. Okay. Well, I have a stupid one. Okay, great. That's um, better than mine. <laughs> So it's a it's a who's sorry now, and it's because the company that I hired to do the recent work in my kitchen did a good job overall, but they owe me an apology for leaving a seam in my kitchen countertop, despite my going back to the countertop store to buy a larger countertop so they wouldn't leave a seam. And also, they also owe me an apology for... So in California, you have to put these like rate-limiting devices on your faucets so the water pressure isn't very good, and they, they, they left it on... Uh, I mean, they had to, right? But they left it on my faucet, so now I have like no water pressure in the kitchen sink so um that i'm mad at them for that and it also the universe owes me an apology because we seem to have mice oh cute, ah! <laughs> cute. So sweet. Well, we, we caught one and it was very cute and i felt bad for a minute um and uh yeah oh we no put so out, i put out like a hundred traps but we only caught one but we'll see Oh, and so are they like mouse traps, or are they more like mouse the, traps. take the pellets and eat them and then die, no, fall asleep traps. and die? Actual traps. I haven't seen the ones with the pellets. You, you just put pellets out and they eat them and take them back to their nests and die. Yeah, so that way you don't have a really? bunch of dead rats laying dead around mice? and mice. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. I'll have to look for those pellets. Yep, and uh, mouse poison. And it makes me sad, right? It's very they're sad. So they're so cute. cute. I know. <laughs> But their poo is like riddled with bacteria. Disgusting. It's so bad. And you it's can awful. like listen to us. <laughs> so on that note. <laughs> <laughs> listen, everybody, don't eat rat poo or, yeah. or mouse poo. <laughs> or mouse poo. That's our advice for you. And uh, we'll be back next week, I think, um, with another episode of our fantastic podcast. Sorry now. <laughs> <laughs> sorry now. Sorry <laughs> now. And so stay cool, cucumbers, and don't trip potato chips. And I got, uh, I need to find, I'm going to find one. Okay. All right. See you later, alligator. It's been there all along. (laughs) There you go. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye. Listening to Apologies Accepted, the podcast. You can find links to the articles and the sources in the show notes. To submit an apology or find out more, visit us at apologiesaccepted.net, where you can also find our merchandise. We're on Twitter at Apologies Accepted and on Instagram at Apologies.accepted. You can support our important work at Patreon forward slash Apologies Accepted and fuck Facebook. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>